صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Bringing you the news and views and the untold side of the Palestinian struggle for freedom from a Palestinian perspective. Good morning, Robert. How are you doing? I'm very, very well. I've been injured, haven't been able to run for a few weeks. Tomorrow morning, I'm going to start running again. So that is my exciting news. How about you? That is exciting news. Now I'm in lockdown as usual because we're in Melbourne, but getting closer, mate. I'm double vaxxed and hopefully everybody else is moving that way. And I'm double vaxxed as well. Well done. Robert, we're joined by a fantastic Palestinian journalist, American-Palestinian journalist, mostly Palestinian, but has been in America, Hamad Al-Qasim. Hamad, how are you today? Doing very well, thank you. Excited to be with the two of you. And I am double vaccinated too. Oh, have a look at that. The triple, perfect. Triple, double. Yes. Be all right if we were Michael Jordan, we can make some money out of a triple-double. Mohammed, this is the first time you've been on our show. One of the things we'd like to introduce to our audience, our new guests, is for them to give us their Nakba story. What happened to you and your family in 48, 67, to get you to where you are today? My story is no different than the story of millions of Palestinians whose parents and grandfathers were uprooted from their villages and were Pretty much, you know, some left in historic Palestine, other left, you know, moved to the uh, occupied West Bank and Gaza. And my parents left Palestine, went for to Kuwait for a while, and that's where I was born. And from there, we immigrated to the U.S. My father is from a uh, small village west of Jerusalem, one of the few, if not the only village that still exists despite having its people uprooted uh, from it, Lefta, which is now is under threat of being uh, transformed or sold for high rises to uh, by Israel and for new uh, Jewish neighborhoods. This is something that is uh, heart-wrenching. It's really, you know, sad to see even uh, our memories being destroyed uh, in front of our eyes. My mom is also from, uh, you know, raised here in Jerusalem. They, they got married and went to Kuwait. That's when they had me and the family later decided to move to the U.S. for a, um, to, to secure a better future for their kids. And I think that was really a great decision uh, that they made, even though it wasn't easy at the beginning. And no matter where you go, Palestine will always exist in, uh, in our minds. We will never forget where we come from, where we came from. And, you know, our parents made sure that we don't forget our those members of our families who uh, were left behind. So, um, and, and also being a Palestinian and, and the story of, uh, of our lives uh, or even my life contributed to, to the profession that I am in now. I think telling the story of the Palestinians truthfully, accurately, objectively, independent of any outside you know, pressure or bias is extremely important. Watching as I grew up in the U.S., how the Palestinian narrative was told really made me want to make sure that our story is, is told fairly. I know that there are millions of people out there in the U.S., in Australia, Europe, everywhere that want to hear 
our story. One of the biggest injustice, injustice that has in, in modern era and modern history that's been inflicted on us Palestinians. You're a Kuwaiti-born U.S. citizen. How do you get into Jerusalem? Well, um, I am a journalist uh, and I'm, uh, you know, uh, based here. On an American passport? Or? American passport, yes. And um, I work for an American uh, news agency and I'm based in Jerusalem covering the Middle East. And um, this isn't the first time that I've covered the whole region. I mean, after uh, finishing school in uh, in 2008, uh, I joined the PBS and a few other, and after that, other news agencies. And because of who I am and because of my interest of the, of the region, I've always covered this region. And uh, that's how I continuously uh, either come here, I'm living here, and um, I continue to cover the, the region. And I still go back to the U.S. where my... Uh, my family still live in in the U.S., but again, I mean, this is a region that is that is continuously, you know, hot, and there are so many in, endless endless stories that, that are happening here, whether in Afghanistan, as we are seeing it right now, or in in Iraq, in Yemen, in, in Palestine, in Libya. This is a region that is um, that is full of stories and uh, will continue to be, and and that's why I'm I'm, I'm covering it on the ground firsthand. Do, do you have to have a um, an Israeli permit to do your journalism? Only if you want to cover the uh, government topics, or if you want to visit the uh, Israeli Parliament, or um, the say the uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Uh, that's when you have to have uh, or obtain a um, government-produced um, journalist card. Other than that, you're free to go around and you know cover. Uh, the stories and how the army and the security forces uh, react that's a whole different story but you know aside from aside from you know having to obtain this uh, this card that's called gpo um, this allows you to uh, be in government uh, buildings and you can cover cover the uh, official um, you know official news uh, of the government other than that uh, you don't need to have um, a card to uh, to be a journalist here are you um, able to film the soldiers, uh, you know, doing yeah. things that they do on a daily basis without a reprimand? Listen, I mean, uh, it's it's a very tough situation, and I think one of the most dangerous uh, conflict zones in the world uh, or areas to cover here. Um, we've, you know, we've been harassed the last few months during, this, you know, covering the situation in Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood. We've been harassed. We've been, you know, some journalists were pushed around. Uh, We've had the tear gas canisters thrown at us, and uh, we've seen what happened to Al Jazeera journalist Jivara Goderi. Her uh, wrist was broken, I believe, or her arm it yeah. stayed in a cast for for a while. Um, you know, so um, we've complained, and um, I'm not so sure that really uh, complaining does any any good. I think you you know, <laughs> you you just uh, know that when you're covering especially the Palestinians uh, here and what's happening that you, you're basically taking a chance. And, and even, to, you know, you're asking a question uh, on a day where I'm planning to go cover um, the occupied West Bank, city of Ramallah, where they're, you know, they're planning a protest later on today against the Palestinian Authority and President Mahmoud Abbas. And we were told that we should wear um, shields only to protect ourselves and to show that we are journalists. So we get it from everyone. We get it from the Israelis. We get it uh, sometimes from the Palestinians. We get it from everyone. But honestly, you know, covering the Israeli army, uh, whether in Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood in occupied East Jerusalem or in um, occupied West Bank, you know, 
you're basically taking a chance. You know, there is a chance that you may get hit by a rubber bullet, by a real bullet, be arrested. Um, we've, we've inhaled tear gas uh, so many times that sometimes I feel like I'm immune, even though that's not the case really. And we felt, I felt suffocated so many times. But this is the story of every journalist, not just me. Um, and the truth must it's be everyday told. life in Palestine too, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, this is very little. I mean, comparing to what the Palestinians face, I mean, we journalists sometimes feel like that we're spoiled because we go out, we do the job, and then at the end of the day, we go home. But it's the Palestinians, whether they're in, 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 in refugee camps, in towns, villages, uh, who are continuously being, uh, you know, attacked by either the Israeli army or even the settlers who are becoming very aggressive in how they are um, living in the, West, in, in the West Bank and how they treat uh, the Palestinian farmers and Palestinians who live uh, in their own villages. So, yeah, it's tough, but it's nothing, nothing uh, compared to what Palestinians face day to day. Well, without you guys, the, the stories don't get out. So, I mean, it's a, an essential part of life for the world to be able to see what's actually going on over there because Israel, as we know, does a good job at trying to to hide the facts of what's going on. So there's a protest about the PA. Tell us about that. Yes, the PA isn't very popular these days. And President Abbas seems to, uh, him and, and, and the tight circle around him seems to be living in, a, in, a, in, a, in an area by themselves and um, somewhat disconnected from the Palestinians. A few months ago, a Palestinian activist, an outspoken uh, Palestinian activist, Nizar Banat, was, you know, died after being arrested by a group of Palestinian security services uh, from, from the city of Hebron. And um, he was beaten. He was uh, um, basically viciously mistreated and that led to his death. And um, there was a backlash against the Palestinian security forces in the PA after that where Palestinians are demanding a an independent commission to investigate his death. And they're calling on Prime Minister uh, and, and who was or still is the interior uh, minister to resign and to uh, let an independent commission take over. That did not happen. But also, also the increase in, in freedoms. You know, we've noticed in the last few years that the Palestinian security forces are cracking down on freedoms. They're arresting any, anyone who goes out criticizing President Mahmoud Abbas and also the Palestinian Authority and certain members of the leadership. And Palestinians, for those who know Palestinians, at the beginning, it wasn't widespread, but, but, but as, 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 it, as these uh, violations by the Palestinian, Palestinian Authority continues, we, you know, we've seen these protests and demonstrations grow. And in the last, since Saturday, when people went out to the street in the middle of, the, uh, of Ramallah, demanding to see what the results of this commission has produced, we're seeing Palestinian poets, thinkers, historians, scientists being arrested, um, activists, uh, as if the PA is extremely sensitive to being criticized, to being you know, questioned on, on, on what, is, what is happening. I mean, there's a deterioration in, in rights here in, in Palestine. There is a deterioration and there is a tremendous pressure on journalists, especially Palestinian journalists, not to report uh, the news um, the way it happens. They just, the PA is extremely criti- uh, concerned right now. And it's, it's, it's really concerned about its image and how it's perceived in, uh, in the eyes of the Europeans as well as the Americans. 
So in defiance of the PA and its president, Mahmoud Abbas, and the security uh, forces, today Palestinians are taking to the streets, especially in the middle of the, the city of Ramallah, just trying to uh, voice their opinion and almost challenging uh, President Abbas. I mean, if the Palestinians have challenged Israel for decades and the occupation for decades, do you think that they will, you know, uh, be silenced against against what's happening by the PA? I doubt it. And that's what they are telling us. They basically want an end to uh, corruption. They want an end to nepotism. They want uh, an end to limiting their freedoms. And uh, they're also, and this is really, I think, what bothers the PA is, we're hearing more and more voices from within the Palestinian community that they're calling on the international community to, to suspend any financial aid to the Palestinian Authority until there is an election, fair election, until, um, you know, corruption is uh, tackled and, and uh, it, you know, it, it's ending. And they want to see fresh blood uh, in the Palestinian Authority. So those who are being benefit, those who are benefiting from in the PA, they're fighting back, and now Palestinians are not uh, taking it anymore. You know, they're fighting on two different fronts, it seems. You know, on, on one side, they're trying to fight the Israeli occupation, and on the other side, they're trying to fight the Palestinian Authority, who seems, in the eyes of many, you know, that's what they're telling us, that they, you know, they seem to be doing the job of the Israelis. We're speaking to Mohammed Al-Qasim from Jerusalem on the situation in Palestine. That's been exactly the point of so many for so long, Mohammed, that it, the PA is a subcontractor for the occupation for Israel, that they'll continue to get money from the United States whilst they continue in that security role in protecting Israel from the Palestinians. That's what many are saying, that they have to do an intifada from within before they do an intifada against the Israelis, a third one. They have to cleanse the system. They have to be ready to do an intifada that is pure and the objective is clear. Um, they think that the PA is standing in the way of uh, achieving their uh, dream of independence. And again, I mean, the, the, in the way the PA has handled itself in the last 25 years and how it achieved almost nothing. In fact, that the Palestinians have lost a lot since the PA came into power in the early 90s. Um, I mean, if you look at settlements, illegal settlements or settlements throughout the occupied West Bank, they're everywhere. If you look at the, uh, the way Palestinian cause is being perceived now internationally, uh, where Palestinians used to to be looked at as, uh, you know, their victims and their occupation. Now, some people think that they, these people are, you know, living in their own, in their own independent uh, state, which isn't the case. You know, the PA basically, you know, does the dirty work of, of the Israelis in terms of security coordination, in terms of lifting or, or taking away any moral and legal and even financial responsibility that Israel as an occupying power should have by doing its work. And, and Palestinians are wondering, what's the point of having a PA, a national authority, that really is not, its main goal isn't to bring us freedom and independence. It's basically, you know, the occupation is continuing under the umbrella of a national authority. So, you know, we're even hearing now, not only people are, are looking for social reforms or financial reforms, they're now looking for political reform. And they say that the PA hasn't achieved what they were told it will achieve within the first five years of the Oslo Accords, um, and that they should uh, just uh, do away with it. 
So from from here for the PA, I mean, look, I don't understand the politics completely like, I mean, obviously you guys, but President Abbas in 2005 came into power for four years. He's 85 years old and he's still there. Now, does, that to me just sounds ludicrous in itself. But from here, can the PA, can it, does it need to be dissolved or can it re- rejuvenate? Does it change the way it looks? Where to from here? Well, that's a great question, Robert. And I think, you know, I can't speak for all Palestinians. And, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to kind of convey what the, what the Palestinians here feel and tell us as journalists. But I have to tell you that President Abbas came into power in, 20, in 2005, you know, elected as president. His first term ended in 2009, and ever since then, he's been basically ruling with an executive order. You know, he's done away with the uh, with the Palestinian Legislative Council a few years ago. In fact, it hasn't been active. And that held him in check, didn't it? Yeah, it hasn't been active since the division between Gaza and the West Bank. And, you know, the judicial system is in you know it's it's in chaos it's it's no one knows exactly you know prison Abbas basically appoints all the judges and they implement whatever policies and, and and laws he he wants or if he signs executive order they basically give it the uh, legitimacy that he's looking for so it's a one-man basically show and he's the one in charge. I'm not so sure if he's the only one in charge. I think there's a very tight circle around him, maybe three, four, maximum five people who advise him and sometimes make the decision uh, on his behalf and they get his approval. And that's why it is almost impossible to do any reforms for the, for the Palestinian Authority. And the main Palestinian faction, Fatah, is in shambles. Fatah is not a unified faction anymore. There are so many different Fatah. There is Fatah Dahlan, there is Fatah Nasr al-Qudwa, there is Fatah this and Fatah that. And that also um, doesn't vote well for the Palestinians as a whole. And it doesn't vote well for the Palestinian Authority, which Fatah makes up the, basically, when you say the PA, it's almost like you say Fatah. It, it, it makes up the majority of, uh, of, of the PA. So... Is it too late to reform the PA? I'm not so sure. This isn't the question for me to answer. I think it's for the Palestinian people. And for those who I, who I speak to on a regular basis, feel that the train has left the station and that PA should be done with and um, there should be a new system. What is that? No one knows. Maybe there should be an election to revive the PA. I don't know, but I think that the Palestinians are desperately in, in need for uh, elections in need for uh, new blood to lead uh, because this young population, wh- whether in Gaza or in, in the West Bank, is desperate for a brighter future. And um, it doesn't look like this brighter future is going to come under the rule of the current PA and the current Palestinian leadership. And one thing I'd like to also add that if you look at the average age of those in the PA, it's above 65 or 70. So th- those can't really work with the young pop- Palestinian population that is highly educated, that is uh, looking for a better future. And they're basically longing for, for an independent state where they can flourish and uh, produce. We're speaking to Mohammed Al-Kassim from Jerusalem on the situation in Palestine. One thing we have to say, Mohammed, that's very important, whilst this slide from hope and the PA and democracy into what we have now, a a perpetual dictatorship. This was by design. The Oslo Accords were 
designed to create a Vichy government to entrench the settlements, to allow more settlers in. And it was based on a, on a notion from the Zionists that eventually we would give up. What they didn't realize was this is not within our vernacular, that we have learned from the experiences of 48. And one thing we got out of May was the the unity intifada when Israel was doing its latest Turkey shoot in Gaza, in Sheikh Jarrah, at Aqsa, that, you know, Palestinians everywhere within 48, in Gaza, in Jerusalem, in the West Bank, but also in Lebanon and Syria and Jordan, around the world, we all were jumping up and down in support of the Palestinians. The fact is they haven't been able to get rid of us. They haven't been able to box us in. At some point, they're going to have to pay the piper, we say. And that's going to need some representation. Is it the sense is a reconstitution of the PLO to be more democratic, to be more representative of people? What do you get as a sense of what tomorrow looks like? Is there any thoughts about what tomorrow looks like from a leadership point of view? Nobody knows. And I think one of the biggest, I don't know if it was a mistake or by design. I personally think that it was by design. President Abbas worked so hard at weakening the Palestine Liberation Organization and also even weakening Fatah, so he could strengthen the small circle of officials within Fatah, maybe Central uh, Executive Committee or or just the Palestinian Authority. And that really hurt the Palestinian cause and the Palestinians in general. The PLO played a major role in making sure that the Palestinians are not forgotten internationally and that their cause is out there. And, you know, in the United Nations and throughout the world. And you hardly hear about the PLO anymore, even though Abbas is the president of the PLO also. He's the president of the APA. He's the president of Fatah. I mean, he's the president of everything. And that does not allow for diversity. That does not allow for diverse opinion, for disagreeing with him. And really, you don't hear that many disagreeing voices within the, the PLO. And by the way, the PLO does not include every Palestinian or faction. And there has to be a major restructuring or reform to the PLO to be really the only but inclusive representative of the Palestinian people. Is that the case now? No, I think, again, I, I don't want to say anything that's controversial. Hardly, there isn't really a leadership, a Palestinian leadership that could you know, come out and, and, and rise to the, to the occasion and, and lead the Palestinians. I think one of the things that really also hurt the Palestinians is having so many factions and their loyalty is in the wrong place. I mean, walking around, you see people are more loyal to their factions that are being loyal to the, you know, to Palestine, to the cause. And I think that is also one of the major negative things that, that happened to the Palestinians in the last few decades. And weakening the PLO, weakening Fatah, weakening people's um, loyalty to, to the cause and shifting their priorities from, you know, working to get rid of the occupation to basically being more interested in, or, or at least putting them in, um, in such a situation where they have loans to the bank and they just want to take care of their own families and they feel that the PA doesn't care for them or for the cause. So therefore, why should I worry and go out and protest when you know, the leadership is, is doing nothing and people feel that they have to pay the price, the ultimate price for someone else. So you have to have someone that could come up, rise to the occasion, either lead the PLO, lead to the to, to major reform of the PLO and, and bring everybody in and also shift priorities where people actually back again, focusing on the real 
issue here. And that's not going to happen overnight. That's not going to happen with just put, planning a, you know, a elections. I think we have a generation that, that is unsure if its leadership really cares about it or not. Such a sad slide. And the, our people deserve so much better, Mohammed. Mohammed, I know you were in Sheikh Jarrah. Can you give us a sense of where things stand at the moment? We know the Supreme Court in Israel has sort of picked the ball down the road a little bit. You know, no decision has been made or going to get passed. What's the situation like in the you know, sort of last three or four minutes uh, in Sheikh Jarrah? Well, basically, the situation now uh, is on hold. Um, people are still in their homes. Those who have not been kicked out of, of their homes yet. Uh, the Israeli Supreme Court has uh, basically... Um, put the whole situation uh, on hold, put the whole situation on hold, things are frozen uh, and, you know, stand still uh, until um, either the next court date or until something huge happens. Sheikh Jarrah, what was so interesting about it is that it kind of reunified all Palestinians together. And basically it re, um, it, it awakened the, uh, the Nakba in the hearts and minds of Palestinians. And the Palestinians said, no more, no more. You know, uh, our parents, when my father left, left, he was what, 10, 11 years old. And when he, you know, he died in 2009, but he used to tell us that, you know, I even remember my, uh, my grandfather used to say when we visited him that, yeah, we thought that we were leaving and coming back. We didn't even take a thing with them, you know? Um, so people said no more, that they're not going to, to, you know, you have to really do something outrageous to, to, to force them to leave home. And I was in Sheikh Jarrah in 2009 or 10, I believe, I think 10, when the first of Kurd family uh, was forced out in the middle of the night. Um, and I remember a, a dear friend of mine, God rest her soul, Amal Al-Qasim, who died a couple of years ago, um, whose daughters now live in their home in Sheikh Jarrah. And it's heartbreaking to see Nabir Al-Kurd and his daughter, Muhammad Al-Kurd, uh, uh, Munal Kurd and all these families, and it's not just our Kurd family, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, 28 families here we're talking about that live. There's this nurse, uh, mother who's, who's a widow, and she has, uh, you know, uh, her children with her, uh, six children, Atiyah, um, who, who told me that she, she sleeps with her jilbab on and her documents and the most important stuff in a, in a, in a luggage, a piece of luggage next to her bed. So when she said, when they come to kick me out, I just want to be sure and ready. I don't want them to see me in my nightgown. I don't want them to see me in my pajamas. And I want to be sure that I have all the documents that I need before they pull me out of, uh, of my home. This is what's happening right now in Sheikh People still waiting. I think it's, it's a game of, uh, of, um, of let's see who can last longer. I think it's dangerous for people to uh, forget the focus. It's not only Sheikh Jarrah, by the way. Sometimes we, te- we tend to forget that there is Silwan also and, uh, and other places. But Sheikh Jarrah kind of put the, the, the focus back again on, on Jerusalemites and the um, <sighs> major injustice that Palestinians, um, you know, uh, face on a, on a regular basis, whether in Jerusalem or, you know, in um, the West Bank and Gaza. But again, right now, the situation is on hold. The, um, and they're hopeful. They, they say that they have all the documents that they need, whether through, from Jordan, from Turkey, from the PA, 
and their lawyers are, are, are working hard at making sure that they are not, um, you know, forced uh, or, you know, get expelled from their homes. Um, the, 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 the court, the Supreme Court made an offer to them, which was immediately rejected. Um, the, the court wants them to be treated or offer them to be treated as protected uh, renters or, or occupants of these homes that after a generation or two, the rent is over and then they can move out. And that's something that they vehemently uh, rejected. So let's see what uh, what happens next. But it's still the situation is still in, in the courts, um, in the Supreme Court. And um, uh, it's, it's on hold right now. Nothing has really uh, uh, been, done, been done about it. So how can our listeners get a hold of your journalism? Have you got a particular platform that they can go to? Thank you so much. You know, um, whether it's the Media Line or, um, you know, Middle East Bureau, any, you know, journalism is extremely important, not just for Palestinians, but for the world. If journalists spoke out freely before the invasion of Iraq, the Middle East would be different. If journalists spoke out before the invasion of Afghanistan, the whole world will be different. Um, I give a shout out to my fellow uh, journalists who work hard and put their lives uh, in the palm of their hands um, and go out and tell the story firsthand, objectively, independently, and accurately. That's why I give a shout out uh, to uh, my fellow journalists who work extremely hard, risking their lives to bring us the, uh, the stories from, uh, from around the world, especially our region. Listeners, go to the podcast page. You'll be able to find a link to Muhammad's work and to those organizations to support him. Thank you so much for joining us, Muhammad. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure is all mine. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening today, listeners. Don't forget, there's never been a better time for a free Palestine.